This morning I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they could bear children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, you braved the winter weather. Thank you for that. Uh, we've all heard the expression, practice makes perfect, right? And we, we kind of grew up hearing that. It was actually used originally as a Latin phrase, uh, use makes perfect. The more you use something, the more perfect you become with it. Uh, it came into English, at least the first translation of it in English was in 1761, and it was found in John Quincy Adams' uh, journal, Practice Makes Perfect. We know what it means. The more you do something, the better at it you become. It doesn't expect you to become perfect as if you're never going to fail. It just means that the more you do something, the better you will be. It's whether it's used in academics or athletics or music, uh, the more you practice, the better you are. I just wonder if practice makes perfect, if that works for like the Christian faith. In other words, I don't mean to, th to say that if you practice the faith and you walk out the faith that you'll, come out, you'll somehow become perfect, like sinless. I don't mean that at all. I think that's perfectionism. I don't believe that. 
I also don't mean that if you practice out the Christian faith, if you walk by faith through life, that you're going to somehow uh, find God's favor more, that you know, God will love you more because you've tried so hard. I, I, don't, I don't even mean to say that. All I mean to say is that walking out the faith, failing, succeeding, failing again, but getting up and succeeding, taking two steps forward, one step back. I mean, this is the way the Christian life feels. It's often like we move forward, but then we, we fall back. We move forward, we kind of fall back. I mean, don't we see this in Abraham's life? I mean, think about Abraham. We were introduced to him in chapter 12, and God put a call, <clears throat> said, come, and I'll make a people out of you. I'll give you a land. I'll make a nation. And you know what? He followed. That's a bold move. He's a moon worshiper, and he's following God. By the end of the chapter, he's going to Egypt saying that his wife is his sister to protect his own flesh. Oh, then in 13, he picks it back up again. In 14, he rescues Lot. <clears throat> he sees God walk between the, the animals that were torn in half. And then 16, he's sleeping with his wife's servant. You know, arise and fall again. And then you saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 18, he's standing before God, appealing for the nations in faith. If there are 10 righteous, will you spare the city? Yes, I will. I mean, he is the intercessor of the nations. Chapter 20, he's backed with the sister thing. I, I mean, it's just a rise and fall, rise and fall, two forward, one back. But we're going to see in chapter 22 that all that practice will lead him to have such faith in God that he'll offer his own son because God's asked him to. He will have moved forward. Abraham for us is very instructive, very instructive in helping us not just understand the way of following God, but how God takes our failures and yet prevails. So God takes our stumblings and yet God's grace is greater. It's sufficient. That's what we see here. We see a failure, a stumble. We see, we see Abraham trip one more time, and yet God's there. And God is preserving him by grace and by faith. He's preserving the promise that he's made. I'm not trying to engender any sort of, well, whatever, case sera, sera, kind of, if I fail, I fail. I'm not, I want you to see the beauty of God and the power of God. And that even when you fail this week, you slip back into pornography or you blow your top, or you get angry, and you think, you know what, I thought I was making strides for it, and here I fail again. That you turn and you run to God, because this is a, a kind God who is committed by his grace to make us into the image of the Son. And that's what we're going to see here. So let's, it's only a two-part sermon. <clears throat> First part is simply looking at man's failure. Uh, Abraham's failure, failure into sin again. And then we'll see how God's grace will prevail. And we have a few points under that. But, but look with me just at one and two, because he's in, he's in Cadiz and he's in Shur. He's traveled southward, right, to the Egyptian border. And he's in this area called Gerar, this uh, Philistine area. And he's traveling again. Now, why is he traveling? We're not told. Maybe it was seeing the smoldering ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But, but he's traveling, he comes to this new area. And in verse 2, we find out, remember, it's, it's a very short, reduced expression of how he fails. He says, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And you're thinking, how in the world? I mean, really? Again, some critical scholars think that this isn't another story. The editor of Genesis just made a mistake, forgot it was in chapter 12, and put it in chapter 20 and didn't realize it. That's harder for me to believe than it's just happening again because we see it in our own life. You, you see him come into this town, Gerar, and uh, we're back on the sister thing, right? I mean, it, it's, it's back protecting him. It's Abraham's sin of self-protection that he's going to do two things. He's going to put his wife in harm's way, and he's going to put the promise of God in harm's way. I mean, you guys looking at the snow, it's like a second grade class again. All the kids are like, hey, let me take a look. It is snowing. Let's just take a peek right now. It is beautiful. I love the snow. Sorry, picked on everybody so nobody can feel like they're not special. So, so two things his sin does. He puts his wife in harm's way, right? I mean, he's saying she's my sister. He takes her into his home. Now, I know some of you scholars are thinking, ah, this doesn't work, Tom. I mean, she's 89 years old. I mean, what were the other women of Gerar like? She's 89. Well, I want to remind you that, that the age, that the lifespan was different, right? So maybe we'll call it the new 50-ish. Uh, but we don't even need to go there because the text doesn't say anything about her beauty like it did in chapter 12. It doesn't say anything about it. So why did he take her in? Well, again, we're not told. It could be that he wanted to make a military, a political alliance. I mean, think about it. Abraham was wealthy. He was powerful. He had a lot of people. He had a lot of people with him. He was moving into this town, this small city state. And remember, he is a history. He did take 318 armed men and go up and defeat these five eastern kings. Abimelech could be thinking, I've got a powerhouse right next to me. I, I have to make an alliance with him. So it could have been that. But, but, but his sin put his wife's honor and innocence in harm's way. But he also, Abraham, put the promise in, in, the, in harm's way. Think about it now. The promise I'm speaking about comes all the way from Genesis chapter 3. You know, Adam and Eve, created by God, fellowship with God, rebel against God, pushed into the wilderness, right? They're in the wilderness. They're, they're now destined to die. Their lives are now on a, on a short runway, but God promises that through you a son will come and this son will deliver you from the wilderness and all your, all your heritage and, and this son will bring all of us back to God, all of us back to the garden, all of us back to fellowship with God where there's no more weeping, crying, mourning, tears, sickness, pain. But none of their children seem to do that. But then Noah... Noah was kind of high watermark. And Noah, they thought, he's the one. But it wasn't Noah, was it? Well, then, then we kind of go back down into the valley of humanity. 
And then we come up to the next high water mark with Abraham. And in chapter 12, you will have a son, you will have a people, you will have a land. And so all the people are looking, where is this son? And what he does when he puts her in Abimelech's house, and remember in chapter 18, chapter 18, God said this time next year, you will have that son, the son you've been waiting for, the son that will be the savior of the world will be here next year. And she's in another man's house within the time frame that when she gets pregnant, what are we all wondering? Is that Abimelech's son or is that Abraham's son? I mean, she's right there within nine, ten months of when this baby's going to be born. And, and Abraham has jeopardized the promise of God. It would be a big question mark. I don't know if he's the son or not. I don't know that Isaac's it. There might be someone else. Because, you know, he was in that. He was among the harem there about nine months before he was born. We're not sure about him. Now, you're like, what's Abraham thinking? Right? Well, he gives us his answer in 11 to 13. And prepare to be underwhelmed. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he's my brother. Now, folks, this is a lame set of excuses, right? There's no fear of God in this place. He just watched God destroy two cities. So it's not as if God is kind of undermanned for the, for the problem. You see that he goes back into this double speak over his sister and his wife. And then it says, and she became my wife. It's like it just happened. I woke up, boom, she's my wife. And then he speaks about the, the, the idea that, and God caused me to wonder. You know, that kind of implying that somehow God is partly responsible for this. And then we see that, you know what, this isn't a one-off for him. This is kind of a besetting issue for him. Every place we go, even at the beginning, so it's a sin that has stayed with him through his entire walk before God. It's really a tragedy. You know, Abraham has walked with God for 25 years at this point. And look at the mess he's in. Boy, if we can't identify with that. A.W. Pink wrote in his commentary on this scene, he said, inexpressibly sad was Abraham's conduct. It was not the fall of the young and inexperienced disciple, but the lapse of one who had long walked the path of faith that he shows himself ready to sacrifice the honor of his wife, and what's worse, to give up the one who is the depository of the faith, to, to give up Sarah to the questioning of, is she truly the mother of this, of this child that's the child of promise? So here we see Abraham's sin. It's front and center. We all see it. So what do we do in this kind of text here. Well, I, I want to just draw a couple warnings for us before we look at how God's grace will prevail uh, over his sin. Uh, just a couple warnings. Number one would be this, that, that we need to fight uh, to be honest about our struggle in the faith. We need to fight to be really honest. You, you know, you, you sit here, and, uh, Father Abraham, good old Father Abraham, 
the father of the faith, spiritual hero to millions, right? He's not glamorized. He's not sanitized. His sins aren't kind of hidden. They're put out there. They're not covered. They're revealed. I mean, think about it. One author said, human tendency is towards hero worship. And the custom of biographers is to gloss over, explain away, and conceal the defects and the dark spots. Not so here. We see him in all of his failure. There's a, there's a certain confidence I gain in the scriptures that they don't protect their heroes. That, that we, we see the truth of his struggle in the faith. And, and friends, we don't want to live in justification and excuse making over our own struggles. If we mean to have good relationships here among covenant members of a church, I think it demands a degree of authenticity that we do struggle in faith, that we do take two forward, one back, that we don't have to make excuse and make all these justifications that you hear him doing. We can say, I, I failed. Yeah, I didn't do that well. I mean, the, the, there's a certain freedom that comes to us. And let me tell you, it removes hypocrisy from us. And the church has long been stigmatized with a bunch of hypocrites. A, a hypocrite is someone that's putting forth a picture of who they are that is not in accordance with who they really are. And the way to rid ourselves of hypocrisy is just honesty. Just talk, just say it as it is. This is where I struggle. This is my problem. This is my, this is my thin spot in the ice. So I think we have to fight for the honesty. I, I hope that we can, even right now that you might be convicted to think, in, in fact, your honesty of struggling in the faith may actually free, somewhat, free someone else to be honest about their own struggle. And what you may find is a commonality in both of your needs for God. Uh, so, so, so let's fight for honesty in the faith. Secondly, let's fight for consistency in the faith. Consistency. So, you know, we look at Abraham, and initially, you're incredulous. It's just incredible. I can't believe he's doing the sister thing again. And, and, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves kind of standing in judgment over his just failure. And, and yet, don't we do the same thing? Don't we have those repeating patterns? I mean, you see Abraham, he's, he, listen, 15 has to shed light on 20. In chapter 15, he believed and it was reckoned him as righteous. He's a righteous man. He's a child of God. He is right before God based upon the one who will come and deliver. He entrusts his eternal well-being to God, and yet he can't trust God to take care of his life. He can't trust God to take care of his well-being. He has to shift into deception and scheming to protect himself. Oh, we do the same thing. We have confidence in God that he will give us eternal life. And yet we shift back to lying, manipulating, when our name's on the line or maybe our job's on the line. We don't want to lose face before somebody, so we'll kind of shift and change the story so we don't look as bad as we really are. And you see, we do the same thing. I mean, we, we, we entrust our souls to God, but then when it comes to finances or our name or our future or our posture or position in the company, 
uh, we click back into what is expedient, what works. It's the same. There's an inconsistency there, and we need to fight for that. We don't have to save ourselves. Jesus has told us that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. How much more important are you? If he's watching over every single sparrow, and you a child of his, you know, we can trust him with our finances. We can trust him with our reputations. We can trust him with our futures. Maybe uncertain to you, it's not uncertain to him. And then last, I would say, uh, fight those besetting sins. You, you see this as a besetting sin is just an expression for a sin that is reoccurring on a regular basis. It's a sin that you're particularly susceptible to. Uh, you know, for, for Abraham, it's, um, it's this idea of kind of protecting his own skin, using his wife as bait to save himself. Maybe for you, it's lust, it's envy, it's bitterness, it's anger. Uh, maybe it's, it's greed, something like that. W what do you find coming up in your own life all the time? What are those stubborn, dynamic sins that you have trouble shedding? Because here's what I want to say. How do we shake those things? Well, well, allow the sin to reveal to you what you're hoping in, what you're trusting in. Allow the sin, whatever it is, the envy, maybe, or the anger. What does it reveal about your heart, the idolatries, the loves that you have, the fears? And let that revelation drive you to God. Drive you to seek forgiveness and help, to acknowledge it, to lament. In other words, don't, I don't want us scrutinizing over our sins and just kind of boring a hole deep into the earth, never to come out again. No, I, I want to use them as identifiers. What's really going on here so that I can go to God and, and, and grab hold of and love the promises that he gives to me to help me? I mean, I mean th this is a common struggle we have. Folks, we all have those sins that just kind of, Hebrews talks about them, they cling closely to us in 12.1. What do they reveal about our weaknesses? What do they reveal about our idolatries? And how can we find sustenance, help, and forgiveness in God? I think this is what Paul did when Paul speaks in Romans chapter 7. I think he was a Christian when he says, I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do. And then he kind of goes back and forth on this, this struggle inside his chest that we all feel. If you're a Christian, now if you're not a Christian, you don't have the same struggle. You may have a sense of guilt when when people may not like what you do. But for the Christian, there's that struggle of, why do I keep doing this? It's a besetting sin. But then at the end, Paul says in 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Haven't we felt that way? With those besetting, who will deliver me from this? And all of a sudden, he says, thanks be to God. He says, it will be through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It drives them right. So, so I was reading on Tuesday. I read The Valley of Vision. It, it, it's a great book on Puritan prayers. Um, there's another book that's come out that's more recent, kind of updated Puritan prayers. Some of them are kind of hard to read. I just got stuck in it for years. But, but I read probably one a day or, or, or most days I read it. And on Tuesday I read this one. 
I love that. I love these Puritan prayers because nobody is better than the Puritans to scour their souls. Right? right? They just lift their souls out, you know, before God. But what they do is they always run to the cross and they always run to God and they always run to what Christ has accomplished. So they're really helpful in, in, in helping me look at my own soul. So this was the one, it was called the dark guest. And I think it was, well, don't look up Tuesday. Dark guest would be it. But he says this, I am not yet weaned from all created glory, honor, wisdom, and esteem of others. For I have a secret motive to eye my name in all I do. Let me not only speak the word sin, but see the thing itself. Give me a view of discovered sinfulness to know that though my sins are crucified, they are never wholly mortified. Hatred, malice, ill will, vainglory that hungers for and hunts after man's approval and applause are all crucified, forgiven, but they rise again in my sinful heart. Oh, my indwelling and besetting sins. Oh, the tormenting slavery of a sinful heart. Destroy, O oh God, the dark guest within those hidden, whose hidden presence makes my life a hell, and yet thou hast not left me here without grace. The cross stands and meets my needs in the deepest straits of my soul. So, so what we, what we want to do in our failure is see the sin. What does it reveal in us? And how does it drive us to the cross? The cross stands and meets my needs in my deepest straits. So this is what we do. This is the practice making perfect. When we fail, we identify the failure and we run to God, who is, as Keith was praying, he's long-suffering, abounding in love. He's patient. The greatest, I, I think one of the greatest lies that darkness has ever promoted is don't go to God until you clean things up. Don't, no, 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 no. Don't, he doesn't want you yet. You're all stained up. Clean it up first and then go to him. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So we have man's failure, the first two verses. Okay, but look at God's grace prevail. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, said, here we are on the brink of Isaac's birth story. It's in the very next chapter. He says, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it's ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally as well as physically, it will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. And this is what we see, the grace of God come in. So from three forward, you see three acts. So here we're in the second part of the sermon. If you take notes, there's three little bullets under this. The first is God's grace will prevail by protecting the promise, by protecting the promise. Look, at me, look with me at three to six. He says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? That kind of federal headship you see there. He says, um, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, but it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So what's happening here? So Abimelech, so Abraham's sin, right, has put Abimelech in harm's way. 
And, and so Abimelech has a dream and God stands before him and says, you're a dead man. Now that, that's sobering. You're a dead man, right? God, the author and the, the author, the creator, the taker of, you're a dead man if you touch her. So God is protecting both Sarah's purity, but also he's protecting the promise. You're a dead man if you touch her. And then, of course, we hear Abimelech kind of make the excuse of, hey, hey, you know what? Sister, brother, they did that sister thing on me. I believed it, but I, I, didn't, I didn't touch her. And, and God corrected. He didn't, right? He's, he's innocent, but why is he innocent? God says, he says, I prevented you. I restrained you. I stopped you from sinning. It was me. It was my power. It was my glory that stopped you from doing what would have killed you. It's incredible here. And then God tells him, listen, go send Sarah back and send Sarah back. And you go to Abraham and you ask him to pray for you so that you might live. Are you getting a big picture of God here? God's saying, you're a dead man. You better pray to him. He's a prophet. First time used in the Old Testament. First time used in the Bible, I should say. A prophet doesn't mean that he's sinless. Obviously, we just saw that he's not. But Abraham has a relationship with God by faith. He's one who speaks with God. People who come to God through faith are his children and can speak with him. He is one. So you see God protect the promise. You see him protect Sarah. But secondly, you see the grace of God rebuke and discipline Abraham. And he does it through Abimelech. I mean, notice what Abimelech does. Uh, look in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, why have you done this to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me the things that ought not to be done. What do you see here? Do you see the contrast? I, I mean, Abraham is the child of God. He's the blessing to the nations. He hasn't blessed the nations. He's actually brought about almost a curse on the nations. And here Abimelech is the moral one. He's the one acting righteous. He's the one with a right understanding of marital fidelity. He's the one that understands truth and falsehood. Abimelech is saying, what have you done? You've put me in harm's way by your sin. God is using, just like God used Pharaoh in chapter 12 to rebuke Abraham, now he's using another pagan Canaanite king to rebuke Abraham. God is exposing Abraham's sin through a pagan. Now, I, I want you to see, God's not disowning Abraham. You don't disown your children when they sin against you. But he's disciplining them. I mean, when your child sins against you, are you taking his name away? Do you kick him out of the house? You may be disappointed. Points you may be disillusioned. But you don't disown him. You don't disown her. And God doesn't disown us in our sin. And we see that right here. God is actually exposing Abraham's sin to bring him to a place of repentance, to bring him to a place of, of that practice will lead to perfection, but not a perfectionism. He's growing Abraham up through this conviction, repentance, conviction and repentance. So you see that he, he, he is gracious in disciplining but then last, you see that God is gracious 
in prevailing by giving blessings. He blesses Abimelech, right? He blesses him by giving him life and healing him. He blesses him by restraining him from sin. He blesses him by those wombs that were closed are now open having children. He blesses Abraham, right? He gives him more ox and sheep and servants. He blesses Abraham by restoring him. He calls him to walk out his role of being a prophet and praying for Abimelech. He blesses Sarah, he establishes her innocence. He establishes her purity. He also gives her hope that here's a God who can close and open a womb. Her womb's been closed all this time. When will he hope open hers? He blesses the nations. I mean, can you imagine those future generations of children that were born in Gerar? I mean, they, they ought to be thanking God that the wombs were opened and they have life and they live life now. So Abraham is already now beginning to function as a blessing to the nations. So you see the, you see the grace of God prevail over the failures of Abraham. So let me give you about five takeaways that I'd ask you to consider. Just five takeaways. First would be, do you understand the collateral damage of your sins? I mean, do you understand that your sins have an impact? In other words, when we sin, I want to make it isolated to me. I want to make it individualistic. But our sins have impact. You see it on Sarah. You see it on Abimelech. You see it on the people of Gerar. You see it on the future generations of the people. of His sin could have had disasters. Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations. His impact was to be a blessing. Remember now in Genesis chapter 3, what did sin bring? It brought a curse upon the people. Abraham is to bring a blessing upon the people, an undoing of the curse, and yet he didn't do that. Do you realize your sins, whether it's of selfishness or outbursts of anger or greed, a word poorly spoken, do you, do you see that they do affect others? Your wife, your husband, children, friends, church community, neighbors, uh, they have an impact. I, it's a simple point, I understand. Uh, but our sins, we want to hide ourselves in a corner and say, this is just about me. It's not about you, it'll affect others. It also affects your witness to others. Abraham was to be a blessing and he wasn't. You know, when we walk in sin, let, let's just say we go to the office and we just do life the way everybody else does it. You know, we give people an excuse not to believe the gospel. We end up looking less moral than the pagan does. Have you ever seen that? Uh, when, the, when the Christian falls, you know, the, 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 those who are not Christian will walk around and say, well, there, that's what you got right there. You know, instead of being a blessing and, and being salt and light to the world, we aren't that way at all. <clears throat> so recognize that your sin has a, a collateral damage. And some of the collateral damage is relational dysfunction, no doubt. But some of the collateral damages were just not walking out the call to be a blessing, to be salt, to be light. And when the pagans look better than the Christians, that's a problem. And God will bring discipline to us. But he does it not to disown, but to move us forward in faith. <clears throat> Secondly, I would say this. Do you ever consider what God restrains you from? Do you ever consider the sins that he restrains you from? I mean, how many times have you been restrained? I really hadn't given much thought to this. And then as I'm walking through the sermon, I'm like, you know, I can't think of the times that someone didn't pick up when I would have said a harsh word. Or somebody wasn't there, or the, or, or the circumstances changed. When I came in with a head of steam, for example, and I was ready to set things straight, 
But the circumstances changed. I couldn't do it. Gave me time to power down. I didn't sin that way. How many times has God restrained you? You have an intent to get things right. It may feel righteous in your mind, but circumstances or timing or the opportunities lost, and you don't sin. And, and later on, you reflect, I'm thankful they didn't pick up the phone. I'm thankful they weren't there. I'm thankful that I, I thought twice that, that I, I was paused before I said something. Friends, this is, this is something that we ought to give consideration to. I mean, to give thanks to God for. Let it humble us. I mean, God, you're even restraining me. You're not just forgiving my sins, but you're restraining me from the sins that I need to seek forgiveness for. And you see him do it with Abimelech. And you see him do it with Abraham. So, so God's grace will prevail even in restraining. Think back over the week. How did he spare you for having to confess something else? You know, maybe, maybe the Spirit of God prompted you not to go in that direction with a person or with a thought. And you're just thinking, well, I feel glad I don't have to confess that one. But thank him for that, because that's his prevailing grace. Thirdly, look at the prevailing grace in terms of the power of God. The power of God. He says, you're a dead man. You're going to die if he doesn't pray for you. God has power over all of our lives in this room. God can close a womb. He can open a womb. Now, I know that's a tenet with a lot of struggles for women who struggle with fertility. And it requires a lot of pastoral wisdom. But, but God is the author of life. And he's the taker of life. He's not passive in the affairs of the world. He's not wondering about what's coming tomorrow. Nothing can hinder him. He can change the dynamic by one dream. He doesn't need, he doesn't need the, the 4th of July he can change directions of lives by one dream. Now, listen, we have a lot of existential threats before us right now, right, in our world. We've got Eastern Europe. We've got looming tensions in Asia. We have a political burndown. We've got financial difficulties. We have a cultural mood that's that's swinging wildly left. We have a lot of existential threats. But let me remind you that there is one who says, you're a dead man. I, I, I want to create, I want us to have a greater fear for God than I do the existential threats around us. They're real. I have no doubt about that. But they're temporal. And they're, they're, there is God over all these things. You see the, the nature of Sodom and Gomorrah. God can deal with that in a moment if he needs to. God can be patient with it. But, but let us not grow in fear of temporal man-made issues and fail to grow in fear over a God who says, you are a dead man. You're going to die. Let, let's not lose that. I, these threats are going to always exist with us. But we have to have, be a people that have a greater fear in God. Don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who can kill the body and, and take your soul. So we're reminded his grace will prevail. Also, God's grace prevails in using broken people like Abraham. How many times have you thought, if you haven't said, you know what, I, I'm, 
I'm too far away from God, I can't be used. I fail into the sin again, I can't be used. You know, we take our failures and we deny ourselves any place in God's kingdom of serving because we don't have it together yet. I need to get in a better season. I need to get in a better place. I, I think with Abraham, we have this example that God will use his broken people to achieve his glorious purposes. God will use you. You don't have it together. We're going to be honest now about our faith. We're going to be honest. So we can all be honest in here that we have struggle points, that we have inconsistencies, that we have besetting sins. We want to go after those, and we want to run to God with grief, lament, repentance, and asking for the Spirit of God to change. But we want to see ourselves as players in God's kingdom. Do not pull yourselves out of God's script because you don't have it together as you think the person next to you does. So he uses broken people. Abraham is a poster child for those of us who don't feel worthy to be used by God. He is a prophet by the grace of God, not because of who he is. In fact, one author said, God's ability to use us, even in our sins for his own purposes, shows us that God doesn't doesn't love us simply for the great things we can do for him. All too often we think that it's in order for God to really love us. We must live an epic life of grand achievement. The Bible, however, focuses on the internals. God works on creating a great heart in us, characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And he does that by exposing to us our sins, repenting, humility, seeking him for change. And then last, I would say this, that God's grace will prevail in being a blessing to the nations. Now, look at Abraham with me for a minute. Abraham will have a son. So we're going to see that in chapter 21. Next week, Isaac will be born. We've been waiting a long time for this. They've been waiting a long time for this. He will be born, and he will ultimately have a son, Jacob. And Jacob will have a son. And they'll have a son and a son and a son. And down the line, David will be in that line. And then David will have a son, uh, Solomon and Solomon will have a son and down that line there'll be a son named Jesus that's born and when Matthew introduces Jesus it's going to be the son of Abraham and the son of David this son will be born and Jesus is the blessing to the nation so remember Abraham stands as kind of almost a, you know he's he's a we can see Christ by contrast in him. But his son, the promised son, will come and will deliver. That's why we have hope. That's why we can look at these Old Testament scriptures and understand them, apply them to us. So, so God's grace will be for the nations, and it will be through the son. And we will meet the son of Abraham next week. So let's take a moment and just and, and confess to God. Uh, Perhaps the failures or struggles we've had. But, but then spend a moment on the prevailing grace of God. His grace in protecting us, in, in disciplining us, as well as uh, providing for us his blessing. And I'll, I'll pray for us in a moment.